Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 126. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the Dose Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Richard Ryerson. So happy that you decided to tune into another episode. I hope you're finding some great value. Thanks to a couple brand new reviews left on iTunes from Clay Finn, C-L-A-I-F-N, and Cragen Kazoo. What a great name. Uh, thanks for your kind words, and I appreciate you taking the time to put in a, a review on iTunes. It helps so much for my visibility and, uh, and keep me front and center on iTunes and attracting even more people to this podcast. And again, thanks so much. Maybe you've checked out my other one too, Courageous Leadership Podcast, which is about two and a half, going on three months now that I put that out there. It's just me for 15 minutes espousing my leadership philosophies, my belief. Hopefully you'll find some tools and tactics and techniques that'll help you bring forth that courageous, authentic leader that I know that we're all meant to become. Again, so much coming and so much happening, and it's all because of you. And thank you so much for your support. Spreading the word, telling a friend, a family member, a co-worker, spreading the word about the Dose of Leadership and the Courageous Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the interview. What an honor it is for me to have on my show today, David Barton. He's the founder and president of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. He's the author of numerous best-selling books with the subjects being drawn largely from his extensive library on tens of thousands of original writings from the founding era. He also addresses well over 400 groups a year. A national news organization has described him as America's historian, and Time Magazine called him a hero to millions, including some powerful politicians. In fact, Time Magazine named him as one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. David, what an honor. Welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Guys, there's so many things I could learn from you. You know, as a student of history and I'm passionate about it, and, you know, I came across you a few years ago. And um, I learned so much just from an interview. I think it was on Glenn Beck's original show when he was on Fox. And you were talking about, um, you asked the question, and I'm paraphrasing, but who were the first uh, African-American politicians? And I was surprised by the answer. Can you educate, tell that story again and educate my listeners about about that kind of... um, Yeah, and, and that whole question and where we went with that is reflective of one of the problems we have right now with education. And, and the, the answer to that is, are who were the first elected blacks in America? And the answer is, well, they were in the American Revolution. You had you had black founding fathers such as Wentworth Cheswell, elected to office in 1768 in New Hampshire. He was a church leader, a political leader. Uh, he was reelected eight different positions over 49 years. Uh, you have Thomas Hercules elected to office in Pennsylvania, 1793, and we can just keep going through that. Uh, by the time you get to to the Civil War. I mean, so many blacks elected office in, in the Civil War. 
uh, and, and quite frankly, elected in ways that we never heard about in history, uh, have no intent to be partisan. But I'll just point out the first 190 blacks elected off in South Carolina were all Republicans, as were the first 99 blacks in Alabama, as were the first 41 in Texas, first 41 in Georgia, first 112 in, in uh, Mississippi, the first 137 in Louisiana, and lots and lots and lots of blacks elected to office that we never hear about. Usually black history starts with blacks being elected to office uh, in the 1970s with Andrew Young and Barbara Jordan, etc. And we really missed 250 years of American history, particularly related to black history and black leaders. You know, yeah, and, and I, I can't remember the individual who it was. I was looking for this the other night, but uh, one of those individuals, those first um, African-Americans elected to Congress, was a freed slave, self-educated, I believe, yes. if I'm not correct. Yes. In, and so patriotic and so loving of this country, right? Is, is some of his writings. Yeah, yeah, when you look at the first uh, congressional blacks, the, the first black congressman um, or the first black senator was Hiram Rhodes Rebel, who had been a uh, he was a, a black preacher, had raised two entire regiments in the Union Army. Um, he was a Mississippi. He, he was a senator out of Mississippi. He was an evangelist and a minister. And on the House side, it was Hiram Rhodes Rebels. And um, excuse me, on the House side, it was Joseph Hayne Rainey. And he was out of South Carolina, and he'd been a former slave. And, and it's interesting that out, out of the first 23 blacks elected to Congress, 13 had been former slaves. And these guys were elected in the 1870 period. And what's so significant about that is slavery in America, as it was at that time, particularly in the South, it was a capital offense to teach a black to read. If a black were taught to read, he would that black would be killed and you'd be killed for teaching it. So we're talking about guys that in 1865, when they were freed through the 13th Amendment, some of them freed in 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation, we're talking about guys who were illiterate and guys who couldn't read largely. And five years later, they're in Congress. And there is a website called Neglected Voices, which lists the speeches of these, these newly elected black congressmen. And I'll tell you, it is embarrassing to read their speeches because it takes a dictionary and thesaurus to figure out what they're saying. Mm -hmm. It is such high syntax and language. And these are guys who self-taught themselves in just a matter of a few years and have such a mastery uh, that at one of the great debates that happened in Congress in that period was with Joseph Hayne Rainey, the black congressman, and the, uh, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. And Alexander Stevens considered to be a very educated man and Joseph Hayne Rainey flat made mincemeat out of him in the debate. I mean, it was just, and so it was so embarrassing that all, all the racist Stevens could say was, well, some white had to teach you that, you know, and it, it's like, no, he's self-taught. He spoke a number of different languages. He taught himself to speak all these languages. And so there, it's impressive stuff that we have back there. And so much of it is dependent on people just doing things for themselves. Uh, these, these guys did not wait for someone to come in and teach them. They taught themselves to read. They taught themselves leadership. They got themselves elected to Congress. They took massive roles. Uh, the first 23 civil rights laws passed in Congress, these guys were part of and helped push them through. I mean, it's just it's really good stuff that we have in that era, and we never hear about it in history today. I know that is so crazy. I mean, it was such it was such a treasure trove when I when I started digging and finding this stuff out. I mean, those are the type of things of history that I love. But it's depressing at the same time. Is why aren't we why aren't these individuals elevated as as the heroes and the models to model ourselves after? Because all of that, what makes America great, the exceptionalism, is wrapped up right in that story right there about that individual. Why isn't that promoted, do you think? 
Well, there's several reasons. One is we have a tendency in American history today to teach what's called deconstructionism or negativism. And that is if there's something wrong with America, we're going to point it out to the kids. I've been appointed in a number of states, the state boards of education, to help write their social studies standards in those states. And when I try to inject positive things in the standards, I get tremendous pushback from, from the teachers in that state, from the educational leaders in that state. We're supposed to have history teach the good, the bad, the ugly. But what we do right now is we teach the bad and the ugly and we ignore the good. And, and that's just not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not the way it was until about 40, 50 years ago, coming out of the 60s and 70s. We had such a hatred for America among the academic elite that they have they have really taken over so many of the, of the universities and the professorships, et cetera. And you look at books, and, and they, they scoff at the notion of American exceptionalism. Well, why? America... America is exceptional. We've only had one constitution since 1787. That same period of time, France has had 15. Uh, you, you have since 1822, Brazil's had eight constitutions. Since 1925, you have Afghanistan with six and Iraq with five. Since 1917, you've got Russia with four, Mexico with four. I mean, you go to every other nation, go to Poland. Seven constitutions since 1919. I mean, it, we're talking about people who have a constitutional change every decade or so, every generation. Certainly, we've had only one in our lifetime. That's exceptional. Yes. We're only 4% of the world's population, but we produce 20%, 24% of the world's gross domestic product. We have 4% of the world's population. Every year we have more patents than the rest of the world combined. We're more creative. And we refuse to tell this to kids in textbook. And quite frankly, I was in a very conservative state last year working with their standards and said, hey, we've got to make sure to tell kids about American exceptionalism. And the teachers went through the roof and said, no way. There's no way we're going to teach that. They go, guys, this is the positive stuff about America. We're not going to teach that. And so there really is a concerted effort. And that's why people really do need to use a lot of self-motivation and, and teach yourself just just like so many of those black congressmen did in the 1860s and 70s. I mean, just teach yourself. You can master this stuff. And, and by the way, I'll point out that's where so many leaders came from, whether it's George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. None of them had any formal education. Eight of our U.S. presidents never went to school. Yeah, that's pretty significant stuff. So it's what we can do if we're willing to do something. Yeah, it's amazing. All the stuff is out there, and it is amazing when you do dig in and you dig, and it's amazing the stuff you can find. It's almost like a, um, it's a treasure trove, really. I mean, there's something you think you know where we came from, and you, you don't even scratch the surface. And again, I've been passionate about history for a long time, and even I get shocked every now and then some of the things that I find. And it's, and it's like I said, on one side it's refreshing, and the other side I, I get frustrated because, like, man, we really – we really aren't that educated as a society as a whole now, about where we came yeah, from. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. We really are not that educated. And, and, and you know, this is not to, to inject a depressing note of this, but quite frankly, in the last election we had in, in 2012, 70% 70% of the people did not know the Constitution was the supreme law of the land. Uh, 65% of voters did not know the role of the judiciary. And 62% of voters could not name the three branches of government. Wow. Now, we send kids to school for 12 years to, to come out, and every state constitution requires that public education produce what, what they call active and informed citizens. Sorry, we're not getting there. $120,000 over 12 years of education, and two-thirds of kids don't know the three branches of government. And that's pretty simple. But by the way, um, not, to, not to just point there, but 48% of elected officials cannot name the three branches of government. Yeah. So we have a real... Uh, we have we have really not done a good job in, in so many areas 
but we do have a lot of sharp people who just step up. And, and you know, there's a great uh, a great quote from Ben Franklin back in the founding era, and he was talking about look at the look at the people that God chooses for leadership. He says it's not the people you think. He doesn't reach up and grab the kings and those that have all the degrees. He said he, he reaches out and grabs those shepherds out in the field who That's are right. their flocks. He he grabs Amos who was a herdsman of Tekoa. He he gets David and Saul who were tending sheep and, and tending donkeys. And he just went through all these leaders that God picked. And so often they're just average common people who don't think very highly of themselves. They say, I'm just an average guy. Yeah, but they make the best leaders. And it's, you know, we didn't reach up and get the most educated and most intellectual and those with the most degrees. Leadership is totally different from that. And I love the way the founding fathers looked at it, discussed it, and, and what they saw. And so much it was designed around character, quite frankly. And that's where the, the first flow of leadership comes from. And then that skills are, are attainable. And you can train skills. But when you have the wrong set of skills on bad character, you just don't get good leaders, and that's what the founders recognized. You know, it's a great point, and I love that you brought up the fact, and, and I don't even care if you're a Christian or whatever you are, but one of the best leadership resources out there is the Bible. And you don't even have to believe in it, but you could read it, and you could glean so many great leadership examples from the Bible. And you talk about um, the differences of uh, in, in, there's so many examples, and you look at all the, the 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 different styles of leadership, the divergent styles. I mean, Elijah was a loner. You know, Moses delegated to a tight cir- right. to a tight circle. Yep. Peter was brass. John was tender-hearted. Paul was kind of dynamic. So there are all different types of leadership styles. But what was great is that they were all um, people you wouldn't think would be leaders, to be quite honest, right? No, you, you wouldn't. And, you know, there's an interesting and, – and let me back up for a little little piece out of the American founding, because you have all these guys who end up being our founding fathers. They get elected to Congress. They sign our Constitution. They sign our Declaration. They frame our Bill of Rights. And, and you look at them, and people today think, well, they're they're an elite. And they weren't. Mm-hmm. You had really poor guys That's in there, right. like – Sam Adams had never owned a suit in his life right. until he got elected to Congress, and then his friends had to take up a collection to buy him his first suit. He was a poor, poor as a church mouse, as the saying goes. Uh, you have rich guys like Charles Carroll, but then you got guys who were farmers, you got guys who were shopkeepers, guys who were businessmen, guys who were also military. I mean, you had some of everything in there. And so the notion that this was an elite little group of really smart guys, no, not by a long shot. And part of that comes through. Uh, by looking at how they conducted elections back then. And I love this aspect of leadership. Uh, when they had elections, and I have so many of the founders' original writings, yeah. we own 100,000 of their original documents, uh, handwritten letters of Washington, Jefferson, Adam, all these guys, we have that, that collection in our library. And what they would do is when it came time to vote, uh, I don't know, let, let's say that you're living in a city and it's time to vote, they give you a blank piece of paper, and they say, okay, who do you want for a governor? And who do you want for state senator? And who do you want for state rep? And who do you want for mayor? Who do you want for city council and school board? And all the positions are on there, and there's nobody's name on there. You have to fill in every name yourself. You say, you know, I, I really like old John Smith over here. I think he'd be a great congressman. And so you go through, and then what they do is they take all the blank ballots, and they go, and they add up all the names. And they say, well, you know, out of, out of the 43 guys that were named for Congress, John Smith got the most votes. And so they would go approach John Smith and say, hey, John, your friends think that you'd be the, the congressman. They chose you. Uh, are you willing to serve in Congress? And so what happened was you never ran for office yourself. People recognize leaders. And, yeah. and you, you turn to the people and say, hey, who among you do you think is a leader? And, and that's the way we ran things. And so the, the textbooks back then taught 
students that if ever you're approached and you're notified that you've been chosen a political leader, you're not allowed to say no because that would be selfish. That would be saying that, that what you do is more important than what the people need. If the people have recognized you as a leader, you step up and serve. That That's your responsibility to be a servant leader. And that's why so many of the guys we had in office retired every time they got a chance. You know, yeah. Washington retired three or four times yeah. after every election. It's like, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. The people said, no, we need you We need you to head of the nation. All right, if I have to. And same with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. These guys kept retiring. Yeah. But that's the way that service leadership was back then. People recognized leaders, and it's commonly not the people who put themselves forward for office, and therefore, the Founding Fathers, and a number of these guys wrote about it, Noah Webster and so many others, that said, anyone who puts himself forward for office is automatically disqualified, because yeah. that means they're in it to serve themselves, they think it's good for them. You let the people choose leaders. I mean, the whole concept of leadership in the Founding Era is so different, and that's why we turned out such productive things, mm-hmm. because we were choosing people who were not pushing themselves, but people who were serving others, and, and that's... That's one of the things you learn in Bible leadership as well, is, hey, you're supposed to be a servant leader. You're not supposed to be a self-leader. Oh, that's just amazing. I mean, that's such a subtle difference. I've never even looked at that, but you're right. I remember reading about John Adams and all, and, and, and when Washington was appointed um, during the Constitutional Congress when they said, well, you know, let him be the head of the Continental, Continental Army. He didn't want it, and he didn't feel yeah. like he was worthy of it. None of them did. John Adams, they could, you know, when he got a— the same thing. Oh, that's just amazing. That's just amazing how far we've kind of come to this kind of plastic banana, phony baloney thing that we're in now. I mean, the intelligence. But, you know, part of that is because we define leadership so poorly now. Yes. We, we look at leaders and say, hey, he's elected Congress. He's a leader. No, some of the best leaders are the people who never get, get yeah. tapped politically in that's that. Right. That's because we so change our system. I mean, the, the capacity of leadership is the capacity and the willingness to learn teach yourself a number of things, and then to go out and solve problems, quite frankly. And when you're willing to go out, I love, again, returning to the Bible, God having this conversation with Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah, look at all the, the tough stuff going on with my people, man. Who, who do I send to fix this? And, and Isaiah pops up and says, well, I'll go. You know, I'll go fix these problems. And, and that was leadership. It was stepping up to, to solve a problem. There was never a calling that Isaiah got. He just said, well, I'll step up. I'll be the one to go do that. Right. And that's the kind of, of leadership that we have seen that makes America so different from other nations. Um, when it turns to where I have to, I say, hey, I'm your leader. Follow me. You know, I got elected. Everybody follow me. No, that, that's not true leadership. And, and that's one of the things that I hope that we get through to our kids as well, is that, that this, as you said, that, that fake, that plastic kind of leadership we have today that's not true leadership, and that's not what we need to save the nation get it back on course. No, you're absolutely right. The truest kind of leadership is that is so absent in what I believe so many people are craving. is It does demand service, sacrifice, and selflessness. I mean, it, 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 there can't be any other way, and it's so absent in so many aspects of all our lives. Well, how did you get so passionate about history in particular? How did, were you always a history bug, or did it kind of grab you later in life? Yeah, that, that, that's really kind of a funny story, because I, I grew up, I, I'm, I'm a cowboy. I, I live out in the country. My my hometown has 220 people in it. Uh, I used to ride my horse back and forth to work. I mean, it's really country stuff. And for country, rural, kind of agrarian folks like we were, we have several kind of views, and, and one of our views is toward government. Just leave us alone. If you guys will stay out of our life, we'll, we'll be absolutely fine. Just We're capable of doing this on, on our own. And so there were several things I grew up not liking, and I, I did not like history. I did not like 
law or government or politics. Mm-hmm. Those were four things that I stayed away from as far as I could. And yet I had been taught about those things in school. And so here, here I am a number of years later. I'm a, a school principal. I'm a basketball coach. I, uh, I teach math and science. I went to college on a math and science scholarship. Don't like history. But I came across two really old documents that I had been taught about when I was in school. And so I knew those documents, but when I read the actual documents for myself, they were totally opposite than what I had been taught about mm-hmm. those documents in school. And I'm going, no, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. When I was in school, they told me these documents, and then I read them, and they were totally... And that got me looking for other old documents, and as a result, we have compiled that library now of 100,000 old original documents. And I, and what we teach and what I was taught and what others have been taught in American history is so radically different from wow. what actually occurred. And, and that's why we put those old documents up for people to see. I mean, we, we have a website, and we post so many of those original documents, and, and whether it's military history or religious history or constitutional history or black history or anything else, uh, it's so distinctly different than what we've been taught. And, that, and that's been what we've worked on for the last 20 years, is trying to get textbooks pushed back in the right direction where it actually does reflect American history the way it happened. I tell you, it is a treasure trove. Uh, I, I mean, I go to your reps, website on a, on a regular basis, and there's always, I mean, it would take me, I feel like, years to get through some of the stuff you got on there. I mean, it's just a treasure trove of information on there. And uh, kudos to you for the work uh, going on there. Let me talk, let's talk a little about Thomas Paine. I use Thomas Paine a lot in my, um, especially um, in the American crisis. I use this, the opening lines of the American crisis in a lot of my leadership presentations to start out. Yeah. I'm a fan of Thomas Paine, but he ended up, it, it, and a lot of people don't realize how he kind of ended up, and I love the letter from Benjamin Franklin to Thomas Paine. I've never seen that. I never heard about it. I knew that Thomas Paine kind of got ostracized near the end of his life. Um, he over, kind of overstepped his bounds, or he kind of he dug deep, and what a wise letter from Benjamin Franklin. I know my listeners probably don't know what I'm talking about, but, but educate us a little bit about Thomas Paine, and particularly that letter from Benjamin Franklin to him prior to him releasing his... Uh, his writings that kind of set him down that ostracized path. Yeah, and to kind of set up what happened with Thomas Paine, it was really a religious conflict that occurred. And to to understand why that's significant, we got to go back and, and say, hey, the way we get taught American history today on the faith of, of America's founders is not accurate. Um, for example, the 56 guys who signed it. And, and by the way, I've seen a number of books come out recently on the faith of the founding fathers. And invariably what they do is they'll choose three or four founding fathers, not very religious, and they'll choose Thomas Paine and Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. They see the founders weren't religious. Now, wait a minute, there's 250 founding fathers. you right. got 56 did the Declaration, 55 with the Constitution, 90 at the Bill of Rights, and you've chosen four or five and said this is the founding fathers. And what I often do, I speak at law schools and universities, and I was recently in a very elite school in the East Coast. Everybody recognized. I put up the, the picture of the 56 signers of the Declaration. And I said, here's the 56 guys who gave us our birth certificate. Tell me, call them by name, who you recognize up there. The only names I got from that class of really smart kids at that university was Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And I have found that in every university where I've been. I've never had more than three of the 56 names identified. One guy did get John Adams one time, but nobody else has gotten any any others. And I said, isn't it interesting that you've been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers and you don't know the others? Hmm. And as it turns out, those 56 founders, 29 of the 56, either were ministers, had ministry degrees, or went to schools that were started trained gospel uh, gospel ministers. So a very strong religious faith among the founding fathers. 
by the time you get to 1815, they've issued 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer. I mean, these guys were very religious. Well, what happened was Thomas Paine, when he came to America, uh, came in 1772, Ben Franklin and Benjamin Rush, two signers of the Declaration, helped get him set up in business in Philadelphia. He became part of the publishing business with Robert Aiken. Uh, when he did Common Sense in 1776, it was a sign of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush, who gave him that title. And Common Sense really just turned the whole nation. Uh, right. It was a best-selling book. Twenty percent of Americans read that book. George Washington considered it really the spark plug that got the revolution going. So it's a very significant book. But then as time goes on, um, and, and crisis is back in the air as well, but as time goes on and the French Revolution starts occurring, Thomas Paine becomes a real advocate of what's happening in the French Revolution. And a lot of founding fathers were not, because it was such an anti-religious revolution. Uh. Um, you had so many deaths. The guillotine was the, was the motto of the, of the French Revolution, as opposed to America, where we're just the opposite. So uh, Thomas Paine goes to France. He helps in the French Revolution. He, he is on the, the side of Christianity is a bad thing. And he takes that French mentality, and so he ends up writing The Age of Reason in 1794, which directly attacks Christianity, and most of the founding fathers are Christians, and, and he just lays it. But before he published that in 1794, four years earlier, he had sent the manuscript to, to Ben Franklin and said, Ben, you know, you understand me. You, you helped bring me here 20 years ago. You know who I am. Uh, here's what I plan to publish. Tell me what you think about it. And Franklin read it. Franklin certainly is one of the least religious founding fathers, but he tore his head off. He yeah. said, don't even think about that. He says, I advise you to burn this piece before it's read by any other person. He said, if men are so wicked with religion, what would they be without it? And he went through, think how many young people need need moral restraints to, to help them stay on the right path. And so you have Franklin really standing up and saying, Thomas, don't do this. And he said, I'm doing this as a friend. You don't understand what will happen if you do this. Well, yep. Payne went ahead and did it. I know. And exactly what Franklin predicted did happen. Uh, you had you had George Washington, who would not talk to him again after that, because John Adams, for example, called Thomas Paine a traitor of the revolution. He said, we this thing on religion and morality, and now he's going after religion and morality. And then you had people like Patrick Henry, who wrote an entire book uh, against Thomas Paine. Elias Budin, a president of Congress, did a whole book against Thomas Paine. Sam Adams did a long op-ed in the Boston newspapers against Thomas Paine. So Thomas Paine ends up being completely on the out, and, and bless his heart, as much as he contributed, because he had attacked religion and morality in the way that he did. Um, when he finally died, no cemetery allowed Thomas Paine to be buried in the cemetery. He was buried in the cow pasture. And that was how far he had ostracized himself by becoming anti-religious and, and anti-morals and what he taught and wrote. You know, what an amazing story. I mean, and again, you're right. To, to, to come so far where, you know, even in the beginning, like John Adams said, you know, George Washington would have never successfully raised his sword if Thomas Paine hadn't raised his pen. I mean, that's how powerful uh, yeah. and popular pain was at the time. I think the statistic I even saw that if you took the percentage of the people that watched the Super Bowl today was this, the same amount of percentage of the um, of the colonies back then knew or had read and was familiar with Thomas Paine. That's how big he was. And then to, to He was a big name. No question he was a big name. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's just one of the examples. Of, there's so many things to learn and to glean from. And, you know, on the surface you would sit there – on one side, you may say, oh, look, see, these guys were just kind of religious zealots, and if you didn't fit their mold, they're going to ostracize you. But it's deeper than that. It's the fact that there's so much of this founding, and they work so hard to 
to try to emphasize that uh, individual morality is the fabric, is the thread at what made this country so great. And um, it was really kind of a, an attack on that. Is it right? Am I getting that right? Or? Yeah, that's exactly right, because the founders, even though most of them were Christians, I mean, they were so wide open on religious liberties. Right. And, and we had Muslims here in 1619. We had Jewish synagogues by 1640. We were building Hindu temples by 1800. They were so wide open on religious liberty. And people like Benjamin Rush, who's considered one of the most evangelical founding fathers, said religion teaches morality, teaches you rights and wrongs. And if you don't have a society that has rights and wrongs, then, as John Quincy Adams said, you can only rule by the law of the tiger and the shark. You know, my my magazine's got 20 shots, yours has got 30, so you win. And and that's what they did not want to. So that's why they, they emphasized morality, and from morality came religion. George Washington's farewell address, uh, very clear, and he looked at France and he said, hey, be very cautious with the notion that you can be moral without religion. That's the French notion, and look what's led to, yeah. look at the, the bloodshed they've had. Uh, he, he said over here, he, he said, we know that's not true. And so his farewell address was about emphasizing religion and morality. These guys were very opposed to a secular, um, secular forced society, which we have today, where if a kid says the word God at graduation, you got a lawsuit. I mean, that, that's so far from what they had and what they wanted. Uh, but they were not into saying, hey, you got to be of this church or this belief or this denomination. No, you just need a climate that is religious and moral because those are self-controlled people. Those are people who can control their, themselves on the inside, and that's what religion and morality help, helps promote. And so that's where the founders were, and that's why we had so many different religions in America. But they saw virtually all of them, and I will say the one exclusion they had was what we now call radical Islam. They had a 32-year American war uh, with Islamic terrorists. By the time George Washington, uh, his last year of office, 16% of the federal budget was being spent against Islamic terrorists. And so this is a big deal to them. But we had Muslims in America, but they made a distinction that, hey, this, this religious belief that they've got, these terrorists, this is not what we're talking about. So other than that, they were, they were pretty, pretty open embracing of religion in America. God, there's so much, so much there. Um, what What do you think is the most surprising to you as you've gone through this? And you, what was kind of the biggest surprise that you learned? Was it the early on things, or as as you dig deeper throughout the years, was there something you just like, oh my gosh, and gave you goosebumps? I can't believe that this is this. I, I thought this way, and this is what the reality was. All of the above. It, it it keeps being brand new stuff, but it's early stuff too. Um, in the collection that we have uh, of those documents. We estimate we've been through less than 5% of what we possess. Wow. And so just in that 5%. And then when you start looking at, we're one of the largest private collections, but when you start getting over into the Library of Congress and the National Archives, and I, I talked to uh, one of the, the folks in the National Archives, they said, we've still got 3 million documents from the founding era that we've never even looked at. Oh, my goodness. We don't even know what's in them. You know, and, and so that's the kind of stuff. There's this stuff all the time that we're finding and saying, wow, never knew that, never saw that. Matter of fact, I heard just the opposite. And it's just an ongoing surprise, but I love it. You know, it's yeah. high energy for me because I love learning new stuff. I love learning truth above all. And so when truth is out there, that's what I really gravitate toward, uh, regardless of whose side it comes down on. I don't particularly have an agenda except let's teach the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's what I really get motivated by. Oh, I love that. God, I would love to, I could, 
be lost in days going through that stuff. I just, that stuff excites me too. You know, one thing that I really, that gets lost and I wish more people understood, and it's always the individual stories, the stories that you never heard, but even particular around the founding fathers and the people that signed the Declaration of Independence and what happened to all those people on an individual basis, story by story, and how courageous that actually was, that gets lost in so, in so often that they just think it's a signing of a document, but really the the they knew the gravity of what was happening when they signed it. And talk about some of the amazing stories that happened to the people that after they signed it. Yeah, well, one of the things the founding fathers talked about a lot was integrity. And they believed that you would not have integrity if there was not a fear of God. And so they tied integrity to religion. And so that's why when they closed the Declaration, they said, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. And a Bible verse that they had used back then was uh, was a Hebrew verse, uh, Psalms 15, where Psalm 15 opens up. David says, Lord, who will be in your holy tabernacle? Who's going to be with you throughout eternity? And the answer is given in verse 4, says, those that swear to their own hurt and change not. In other words, the people that are going to be hanging around with God are the people who keep their word, no matter how much it hurts them to keep their word. And so this was an American character trait we taught, and that you do not break your word. That's why we didn't have many attorneys back then. We didn't have contracts. That's why handshake was your word. Uh, and, and that's why they had so many duels also, because if you challenge somebody's word, that was a killing offense. Right. And so duels came out of this thing that, man, my word is me, and I don't break my word, and I don't lie. And, and so with that concept, you have these 56 signers that say, you know, we don't have an army. We don't have a navy. But the 56 of us, we're going to agree together to overthrow the world's greatest military power. <laughs> and, you know, imagine us doing that. Imagine 56 anywhere in America getting together to overthrow the world's greatest. It'd be nuts. Everybody else would laugh at them, say you're crazy. And we could take the world's 18th military power. We could take Haiti. We can't get 56 people to agree to overthrow something like Haiti. And so to imagine what the founders did, just put yourself in the spot of being 56 folks who have no resources particularly, but you're going to overthrow the world's greatest military power. And then you say that no matter what it takes, we'll pledge our life, fortune, sacred honor. Well, that's where you see that of these guys who signed the document, nine of them never lived to see what they wanted the rest of us to enjoy. You'll find that 19 of them lost every single possession they had in keeping their word. They completely bankrupted themselves in funding, because nobody else from the outside is going to fund these guys. I mean, this is a pipe dream. It wasn't until we were three years in the Revolution finally winning battles that folks like France and Holland said, yeah, maybe these guys will win some of this. We'll, we'll take a risk. We'll fund them. And so for the first three years, it's all paid out of pocket. And so you, you look at how many of them were shot in battle, five shot in battle, three made prisoners of war. You look at how many wives were made prisoners of war for, for fighting. Uh, Elizabeth Lewis is a great example. I mean, the stories of these guys, their integrity, but their sacrifice – Really unbelievable, and that's another story we don't get today that we used to cover very heavily in previous generations. That's where we got the notion that, that freedom is not free, that there are sacrifices to be made, and we used to study the signers of the Declaration as the epitome of sacrifice and the epitome of self-sacrifice and the epitome of integrity. This is what integrity looks like. And so out of those 56 signers of the deck, you cannot find a single example where one of them refused to give his life, his fortune, or his honor to help the cause. None of them ever faced the British and said, you know, there's three million people in America. I'm just one of three million. I, I really can't make that much of a difference. I'll tell you what, uh, I'll, I'll back off. I, I won't. None of them backed down. We, we have Abraham Clark, signer of the Declaration from, from New Jersey, 
the British caught his two sons and started torturing them. They were putting them to death in a British prisoner of war camp. They got word to Abraham Clark, said, Abraham, we got your two sons. You know what's happening to them. If you'll renounce your signature on the Declaration, we'll let your two boys go. He said, I can't. I signed it. I believed it when I signed it. I believe it now. I'm not going back on my word. Even to save the life of his two boys, he would not break his word. Amazing. And that's the kind of examples you find of the signers of the Declaration, and that's the kind of character emphasis they had back in that day, and that's what made them good leaders. Much different than what we've been taught, that's for sure. It's oh, very different. That's just amazing. Dave, you're doing outstanding work, and I'm such a huge fan of what you're doing. Tell us a little bit more about the mission of Wall, builder, wall Builders and how people can find you. Wall Builders, uh, the, the phrase we use is we present America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional foundations. And while we bring out history in all areas, those three areas are the ones that we think are underemphasized the most today. And so we do try to bring out these histories and these heroes, the Abraham Clarks we just talked about and, and others, uh, and, and have people become reacquainted with them because history is very applicable for today. It's very practical. Um, as a as a religious guy myself, I believe the Bible where it says there's nothing new under the sun. Technology changes, but human nature doesn't change. And therefore, the same leadership traits and character traits that they exhibited back then we can have today, the same type of integrity, the same willingness to self-sacrifice, the same self-motivation. We can do all of that, and that's why I think examples from history are so good for kids, so good for adults, because we can identify with other persons who have gone through certain things, and that's really what we try to do with wall builders is bring that out. It's amazing stuff. you got to welcome home always here, David, at Dose of Leadership. I'll do everything I can to promote what you're doing. I believe in it so much, and I agree with you that uh, there's nothing new under the sun. History can teach us so much. And uh, and thank you for, for taking the time and everything that you're doing out there to uh, promote this uh, kind of common sense. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure, and thanks for all you're doing to promote leadership and common sense as well. God bless. All right, take care, dude. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.